Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this summer. They're located online at asanacenter.com and Roots Market cafe.com and thanks to kelly and michael marakna who believe in supporting diversity learning and growth theme music is provided by wvlp's very own paul schreiner thanks paul so today we bring you one story actually from the welcome projects archive titled the concerned latins organization and this story is actually uh, a few minutes long so we're going to really dive pretty deep into that and one exciting thing is that um, this story is told by a historian, so we actually get some like factual context that we're going to be delving into. So I don't know, Allison, do you want to talk a little bit about um, what made you choose this story? And um, yes, yeah. And I want to give a thank you to a donor <laughs> who edits our radio show for us into podcast episodes, our very own Liz Werfel, who has provided us and WVLP by extension with these lovely mesh microphone guards. So hopefully, dear listeners, you will benefit from less plosive sounds in your ears, thanks to, extra good today. thanks to Liz Werfel. I want to back up for just a minute and say that this story is part of the Flight Paths Initiative. Uh, most of you who've been listening will remember that the Flight Paths Initiative is our Northwest Indiana Oral History Initiative, and it centers on Gary, Indiana. Um, the, the area or the time period that we really focus on is about the 50s to the 90s. Um, and thinking about the rise of the civil rights movement and the, the election of Mayor Hatcher, first African-American mayor of a city that size, alongside Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> I always got to throw, especially since we're doing history today, I feel like you have to throw in the, that extra tidbit that most historians want people to remember. And then the backlash to civil rights movement uh, with the white flight, the suburbanization of America, the businesses moving to suburbs, and the deindustrialization of the mills. So um, Flight Paths is a way to help us really think about the impact on neighborhoods and cities and um, their ability to respond to those really enormous conditions. In pursuing the Flight Paths project, Liz and I really focused initially on the black-white story. So Gary attracted a large migration of African-Americans from the South who were fleeing the Jim Crow um, segregation laws there. And it also attracted many Eastern European immigrants. There's an additional part to that immigration story, however, which is um, both Mexican-Americans and uh, then a second round of recruitment from Puerto Rico. And it took us a while to get around to really starting to include the Latinx story. So much of our attention in Northwest Indiana is on the race relations between black and white. And so we had really focused on that initially. And so uh, the storyteller you're hearing from today, the historian, um, usually we name our historians, and this is uh, Emiliano Aguilar, and he's a doctoral student at Northwestern University and also a resident 
of the um, region. So it's really great to have this information coming from him because it's um, meaningful in terms of how it's a history that he personally also was impacted by. And if people are interested, they can go to our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu, and you can look up historian or you can look up flight paths, the categories, and you can find a more personal account we have from Emiliano of his own life growing up in the region. So that's a little bit of context for um, where this story is located at in our bigger archive. And also then one of the reasons I wanted to pull it out today is we're in the middle, basically right down the middle of Hispanic Heritage Month, which spans September and October. So it seemed a really good time to um, bring some attention to what I think is a neglected history, not just you know like by us, but other people too. So yeah, I wanted to celebrate the presence, uh, the longtime presence actually of Mexican American and then Puerto Rican Americans in the in the region. Awesome. This one is titled "The Concerned Latins Organization." I think one of the most important things to know about the Latinx communities in Northwest Indiana is that these are not newcomers. This is not, this is not a new population to the area, dating as far back as the turn of the century between the, 18th, uh, the 19th and the 20th century. There have been Latinos involved in the growth of turning what was once a very marshy swamp land into this industrial, once powerhouse of the nation. I guess you could say the most concrete uh, movement of Mexicans into the region comes in 1919 during the steel strike. Maybe five, six hundred Mexicans and Mexican Americans are brought into the region during this two-month period. Word of mouth becomes one way. There's also the use of labor agents that we sort of see as well when we talk the great migration with the African American community where companies send labor agents to pool halls. The Puerto Rican community really starts to establish itself in Northwest Indiana in those post-war eras, the late 40s, early 50s, and it is more or less a recruitment effort on behalf of places like Inland Steel, who then start to purchase former hotels such as the Lincoln Hotel and the Washington Hotel to house Puerto Rican steel workers now. So in union politics with Local 1010, you would think there's you know this thing of the Latino vote Right? And a lot of the early Latino steelworkers who wanted to utilize that to get office positions within the union thought so too. More often than not, Puerto Rican steelworkers and Mexican steelworkers did not vote along the same paths. Uh, Peter Kalichki, who started a unity slate in the 50s in USW's Local 1010, tries to form this local, this coalition between ethnic Europeans, African Americans, and Latino steelworkers. One of the problems he comes across is that Mexican and Puerto Rican steelworkers really don't see eye to eye. One of the key reasons for this, I believe, is this politics of citizenship. Whereas Puerto Rican nationals are considered citizens the moment they step on U.S. soil, that's not the case for a lot of still these Mexican steelworkers who, especially in this post-war era, maybe are only a few years into the United States, and some of them maybe even still having the memories of the repatriation movement well into like the 60s and 70s. When the civil rights movement starts, there is this coalition building that happens, the Concerned Latins organization, which is made up of Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and even a few Cubans from across Lake County. The Concerned Latins organization really is responding to the time period and this tumultuous time of the civil rights movement. 
for a lot of them, what instigates or sort of inspires them to action happens in 1970. Two mothers try to register a child at Washington High School in, in, in East Chicago. There's this phrase thrown around by the vice principal, Mitchell Barron, that you know they're lazy and ignorant. And this phrase then becomes the hot ticket. And the mothers take it as the vice principal is referring to all Latinos as lazy and ignorant. And Barron claimed that he was referring to, you know, that they are ignorant of the policies, they couldn't accept the student, they couldn't register him. And this sparks an outrage. And the community really starts asking Mayor Dr. John B. Nakosha to investigate this, to make Barron resign. He's placed on suspension. After a month-long investigation, he's brought back. And the community comes together as Nikosha and his wife are returning from a dinner, they see 50 or so Latino members of the community, they're on their yard. Signs, chanting, yelling. Before even leaving the car, he calls the cops. The cops are then sent to disperse as he's trying to walk his wife in. Victor Manuel Martinez, who was an editor for the bilingual newspaper Latin Times in the community, approaches him to ask him questions on this entire incident, and when a young high school student goes to take a photograph of Manuel Martinez confronting Mayor Nicosia. Nicosia, some newspapers claim, punched the youth. He smacked the camera from him. And this inspired so many editorials in the bilingual paper about the sleeping giant and the community that's now outraged and wants answers and wants justice. Parents call in their children sick. Uh, newspapers carry this headline of the brown flu or the Spanish flu um, that now they're not going to go to school until Barron resigns. So Nakosha answers for this slight against the community. Uh, so Nakosha then doesn't pursue a another term. Barron stays on the school board. Washington High School and the school board of East Chicago brings in Joe Flores into administration, moving up a you know Spanish-speaking member of their institution to administration to sort of alleviate that. However, whether or not that works, I mean, that's up to debate. Um, and the Concerned Lands organization is made up of a lot of these early protesters. One of the mothers who tried to register those, that child, Irene Gonzalez, becomes the president of the organization. It's a coalition organization that brings together roughly 35 neighborhood groups. Uh, and they're associated with the church, with mutualistas, with steel politics. They have a chapter for minority firemen and policemen the wide net they cast for this coalition building, creating a united platform really becomes simplified down to three things for the Concerned Latins organization. Education, housing, and employment. And they really, under the umbrella of those three pillars, try to confront a lot of the discrimination and issues that the community has faced in the region. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, Indiana, and streaming online at WVLP.org. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte with my co-hosts Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And today, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we are pulling out of the Flight Paths archive some of the history for the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana, as recounted to us by uh, doctoral student Emiliano Aguilar. You know, this is, these are different than the typical stories we listen to, and there's a lot of information here. So I think 
it will be a, a good idea for us as we talk about it too to repeat some of the information we see and go back and reiterate names and um, to help ourselves as well as our listeners kind of keep track. But I wonder if you to have an impression, just kind of an immediate first impression of what you're hearing here. How does how is it landing or what's standing out to you about it? I mean, what's definitely standing out to me is, um, and this is common within a lot of immigrant communities and people from the outside of those communities trying to come in and organize or to assist in organizing whatever exactly is going on here. The assumption that the immigration like population or the, the population that has recently moved what, in whatever case uh, is a monolith in what they want or what they need. So he's talking specifically about like Puerto Rican immigrants, even though they are like citizens, they are moving from an island to the mainland of the United States. So hopefully that word is appropriate. But Puerto Rican immigrants coming here and having a very different expectation and very different needs and very different desires from their like mostly like Mexican uh, counterparts, not all of the Mexican Americans, some of them still considered citizens of Mexico and not having any citizenship and therefore not the same rights that a lot of the Puerto Rican Mm, um, travelers have access to. So just always thinking about that, always, always remembering like the lack of a monolith, despite something that is considered unifying, such as like a Latino identity. Yeah. And to the chagrin of maybe some of the organizers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that definitely. wanted there to be a more immediate <laughs> affiliation. This will be easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Willa, what about you? Just initial reaction thought? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of struck by, like, the similarities I was hearing, like, between then and now. So I'm thinking about when they show up on Nakosha's lawn to sort of, Mm -hmm. um, like, confront him with, like, signs and chanting. And I'm just thinking about, you know, this Supreme Court, you know, thing where people are going up on judges' lawns and, you know, chanting and protesting. Um, Yeah, that stood out to me, too, because there's been so much commentary about whether that's appropriate yeah. or okay uh-huh. have like protesters crossed a line if they're going onto someone's personal property and i thought it was because of that conversation a new thing so it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear that i don't know organizers have maybe been using that tactic for quite some time <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I interrupted. Willow, go ahead. No, yeah, that's just what really stood out to me, the fact that, like, that was happening back then. I don't know. It's, like, it's also kind of hard to imagine, like, I think, I don't know. I think you always just, like, think about, like, people from, like, past generations, and I don't know, there's always, like, a sort of mildness that I associate with that. Hmm. And then I think, like, oh, we're, like, a lot more forceful these days, or we're, like, more protesting. And I don't know, it's just kind of nice to sort of, like, be confronted with, like, that's not the truth. Of course that's not the (laughs) truth. Like, people got angry back then and did something about it, so. The weird pacification of history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I am appreciating, and I think this is one of the reasons that I like getting historians' takes on the region narrative, that um, they can put forward the community story that is about agency and advocacy um, on behalf of, as opposed to sometimes I feel like we are often, or maybe it's just me, I'm often asking people I'm interviewing about, you know, challenges they faced. And so then there becomes this, a little bit of attention on the difficulties and maybe even the victimization. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice um, here to be hearing about how people organize on their own behalf um, and on the behalf of others too, like the 
labor um, organizers are trying to think beyond ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. To like think through their role as workers more broadly. I did want to add in because there's this brief mention of the repatriation movement and we have a whole nother story on the website. It's actually called repatriation movement for those people who don't know anything about this. But, you know, Emiliano says at the beginning that the Latinx presence in Northwest Indiana is not new. Mm. And there was a period of time around the Great Depression, 29 to 39, when in part as a response to the economic need, urgency, the inability for people to have work and take care of themselves to then push out to repatriate, quote unquote, the uh, Mexican nationals. And this wasn't just in Northwest Indiana. It was happening across the country. But there's a particular person who like got behind the charge here in Northwest Indiana. And so actually there was maybe more repatriation that, that happened here than in potentially other parts of the country. So it's a really interesting story. And if you think about it from the side of the people who were trying to repatriate the Mexican nationals, it's usually talked about as a voluntary movement. But there's lots of ways to coerce voluntariness, Mm -hmm. especially when you're using economics to motivate people. So some people did return to Mexico that you know, weren't really wanting to, but felt like they they had no choice based on the options they were being given. So um, I think that's a a moment in the story where Emiliano talks about a little bit and how the Mexican and Mexican-American laborers would be coming in with a different set of um, experiences than the Puerto Rican. And, And you also pointed out, Reagan, that Puerto Ricans, because they have U.S. citizenship, are already seeing themselves as different than maybe many other Latinx immigrants who might come from other places besides Mexico, right? Like they might have a interest in distinguishing themselves as um, citizens already. So yeah, I just wanted to add that in in case that informs some of what makes it difficult to like uh, have the coalition building between the two or well, in this case, between Mexican American and, and Puerto Rican Americans. Do we want to think about some of those early challenges to coalition building? Do we want to jump right into this fabulous story from the civil rights era? (laughs) Yeah, let's start from the top. All right. What are you noticing? Emiliano sort of puts us in the year 1919 when um, he's talking about the concrete movement of Mexicans into the region um, and about how people are sort of like solicited by inland steel to sort of like come up and Not sort of. work with them. Yeah. <laughs> Explicitly. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yeah, so like, I don't know. I, I think I understand what's happening there, but I don't know. So it's like, so they're saying they're sending labor agents to pool halls well, to, like what's happening there? Can I get in? Yeah, here? please. Okay, so I am not familiar with this particular aspect. However, there is an instance, and it's particularly common nowadays within agriculture. So, like a lot of people are familiar, a lot of people in America are familiar with Latinx labor forces that are like borrowed in the U.S. to like harvest food. Um, however, another big one that um, takes in a lot of immigrant labor here in the U.S. Um, is the meat industry. Okay. So what 
the meat industry will do now, and it sounds very similar to what the steel industry did then, um, is basically go to these places. So like go to places where people might be looking for work or people are recreating. So like a pool house, a bar, Mm. um, something along those lines, hanging out. And they're like, hey, do you want a job? I have work for you. You would get a temporary visa. We would take care of you while you were there. We'll provide housing. We will pay you. You can send money back to your family. And we'll, it'll all be cool. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time, at least with the meatpacking industry, which is happening now, to be clear, um, it continues to happen now, they will exploit these workers they because they are not citizens they do not have to pay them the way that they pay uh a, a citizen workers and they do not have to provide them benefits um etc 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 and oftentimes because of the nature of the meatpacking industry and how very dangerous it can get very quickly uh they a lot of these workers will become permanently disabled like losing mm-hmm. hands losing limbs um being injured by the animals and then they are they are sent back so I hope, I mean, I'm sure the steel industry also did this uh, to some extent or to a large extent. I, I'm not familiar, but that is immediately what comes to mind is like, this seems like a very similar process yeah. of, hey, mm-hmm. uh, you are from another country and you need a job and I can give this to you and I have this great package for you. Mm-hmm. We're going to work you real hard while you're here. Except it seems like a lot of these people were able to bring their families along with them or were somehow later on able to bring their families yeah, with them. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a couple of, I think there's probably two stories here at the same time or two moments here at the same time because recruitment to the steel mills for Gary during the turn of the century, the, tw- the, the early part of the 20th century, I mean, I don't know that the steel mills would have been invested in their employees and their employees' families, but Mm -hmm. the city of Gary had only been founded in 1906. Okay. Um, You know, so, like, it really was a recruitment into the city, too, into, like, building a workforce that would stick around. So they might have been actually giving them, like, proper work visas and all of that. Well, uh, so I do not know. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, yeah. I 100% do not know, like, those kinds of details. But I don't think there was the sense of, like, only, at least in the early part. Uh, and, and also thinking about uh, when, when African Americans were recruited um, mm-hmm. after the Second World War. It was less about, like, bringing you up here and then you go away. I, I think the steel mills had a sense of the need of their industry, like their workforce needs were going to be ongoing. Mm. So that wasn't a problem until, you know, deindustrialization, automation and stuff mm. when they were like, okay, now we don't care about you because we don't mm. need the same we numbers. Don't need, we don't need the bodies. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing that Emiliana is referring to specifically here is the steel strike of 1919. And I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here, but listeners, um, if you go to our website, say you can actually find um, another clip by Emiliano. It was a very rich interview we had with him in order to learn about the steel strike of 1919. And this is where the, I think, I think we can point fingers pretty strongly at the steel <laughs> industry because they brought them in to break the strike. Oh, so there's some really dramatic stories of how they brought them in through the through the harbor basically um trying to sneak around bringing them in through the water as opposed to like trying to actually take them across the line of strikers that were outside the steel mills so it was a pretty dramatic moment in time and the the workers who were being recruited from mexico didn't necessarily know they were being brought in to break a strike Mm -hmm. so that is also another reason why then labor organizers have an 
extra task when it comes time to try to um, organize across race and ethnicity, because there's this memory, at least within the labor movement, to some extent, um, even if it's 40 years later, you have to overcome the fact that the steel industry was very invested in keeping those race, racial and ethnic lines um, strongly divided to keep their workforce from, you know, organizing on yeah. each other's behalf. So this is um, WVLP, LP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, uh, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely regularly on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations to continue to spread the word that ongoing volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting the website wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible, and we at The Welcome Project would sure appreciate it. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. You're here with me, Allison Schutte, and my co-hosts, Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And today, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we've been listening to one of our historians in the Flight Paths Initiative talk about the presence of the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana. Specifically, we're working up to better understanding this organization um, that was called the Concerned Latins Organization and grew out of, if I'm understanding correctly, the civil rights movement here in Northwest Indiana. I know we have another you know, part of the story to play yet, but I, I wonder if we talk a little bit first about the, the actual protest that happens around education, like mm -hmm. which parts of that story stand out to you? Do you see it as successful? What are the outcomes that we notice that grow out of that, which are beyond the immediate desire that the women had to enroll some of their students at the school? Yeah. So, well, I think it started out as, so the two mothers trying to register their kids, the vice principal calls them lazy and ignorant. He tries to retract by saying, oh, I just mean ignorant to the policies. They get pretty upset, um, asking Mayor Nakosha to investigate that, but the vice principal is then brought back, and so then they go to Nakosha's house to protest that, and then so it sort of ends in, like, the vice principal is, like, on the school board still, but I guess at the same time they get Flores, who is Spanish-speaking a member of the institution, to be sort of the administration, so... Some games. I don't know. Yeah, some games. I'm like, okay, I guess like, we get one. I guess. We get one thing. Though, I think, Willow, you also brought this up earlier. Like, this is very parallel to now uh -huh. and to what a lot of the things that activists choose to do and that activists choose to cover now. Um, not that these things are not worthy of being covered, to be extremely clear. Um, maybe don't hit children. Um, <laughs> maybe don't do that. Um, also, maybe don't call people lazy and ignorant when there's likely a, a language barrier uh, mm. preventing people from following your policies. Yeah, no, but it just, it's very reminiscent of just like you both were saying, um, people camping out Brett Kavanaugh's house uh, and all that good stuff. But it also uh, very much reminds me of just the way that a lot of 
small time, like these are not news sources to be clear, but small time creators on like social media now cover things. Mm. Um, it reminds me of, you know, somebody's just happens to be recording something like mm-hmm. a, a police officer doing something and now it's a big story and now it's like this person is like the creator or the perpetuator of the story so like partially where i think i get that is the the bilingual newspaper um editor mm-hmm. was there at the time but it's just i don't know just like willow said it's it's interesting because i you know you forget sometimes about how, you know, people in the past were just like us. They were angry just like <laughs> us and they they moved in the same ways that we do. We do and they do the same things that we do and this just reminds me of somebody pulling out their smartphone and happening to catch the mayor hit a child mm-hmm. because he's annoyed. Yeah, I mean, and I think we're we're the beneficiaries of these forebearers, mm-hmm. right, that we've softened perhaps in our historical memory um, because it ends with, at least for Emiliano's telling in our case, um, he sees that the long-term benefit or impact is that the mothers, um, and he mentions Irene Gonzalez in particular, create the Concerned Latins organization, or maybe that already existed, but they use that body then Mm -hmm. to solidify their organizing. And they bring in 35 neighborhood groups. Um, He mentions the church, the Mutualistas, um, and steel politics, so we're talking about labor there. The Mutualistas, um, the Mutual Aid Societies, would be another story you could hear about on our website, Mm -hmm. um, which is another potentially pattern for immigrant communities when uh, enough members of a particular country come to an area, they will find ways to mutually support each other in the Mm -hmm. absence of receiving benefits from the host country. Um, So that's what the mutualistas refer to. So so there's these um, seeds that have already been existing in the church, the mutual aid societies, the labor movement, and Irene Gonzalez uses the Concerned Latins organization to bring them together through these neighborhood groups. And then they are able to articulate to themselves and begin to focus on the three areas that they're really caring about, education, housing, and employment. So I think that's, that's probably a big, that feels like a big deal that maybe we see better in hindsight, you know, like you can see pretty quickly gains or losses from some immediate protest, right? Like, okay, there's a board member now that's Spanish speaking. And then like, is that a big gain or not? But with the insight of history, we can see that there's something much broader that coalesces because of it. And I find that (laughs) to be worth celebrating and remembering Mm -hmm. um, because when we're in the midst of our protests, it often doesn't feel like that is happening. So, um, well, that comes back to a conversation that we've had a lot of times too of, and I would not consider this a failure to be clear, but they definitely didn't get what they wanted also. So like this failure out of this failure came a new thing because somebody tried. Yeah. Yeah, you've talked about that before. Yeah, it's very important to me. (laughs) (laughs) But like that definitely, this feels like a very clear cut example of that. Like, did you get immediately what you wanted? No. But now we have a whole new other thing that hopefully can accomplish a little bit more. And even if you don't accomplish everything, somebody after you can come through and accomplish a little bit more. And it seems, it seems like exactly what this community was able to do. Yeah. 
So should we go ahead and play the last part of the clip and then see what we notice about how their work proliferates? Yeah. Um, so this will be another about five minutes. So the Concerned Lands Organization is aligned with Saul Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundations. So they really adapt this neighborhood organizing platform and are probably more akin to like the back of the yards neighborhood council in the south side of Chicago or cops in El Paso than maybe the Brown Berets or the Black Panthers. Carmelo Melendez, who is also one of the officers for their organization, uh, another Puerto Rican member of the organization actually, describes their tactics really as a nuisance to get a response. One of my favorite ones, and this got many of the members banned from First National Bank, uh, is that they would then go and take in their paychecks, their checks, and demand that uh, their pay deposits are made in pennies, and they'll turn around, go to another counter, and it has the teller to count up each and every penny before depositing it in to sort of then initiate this response and force the Chamber of Commerce to act, uh, recognizing under like the Solinsky School that politics answers to money. A lot of the places they targeted were businesses, and they recognized that if they got businesses to support them, politics would have no choice but to then to start kind of listen and hear them out. City governments were notorious for trying to stifle their voices in city council minute, uh, meetings. East Chicago erected a barrier, a fence between the council, the common council, and the Concerned Lands Organization, or well, you could say the podium in general. So they put a fence up between the two because members like Irene Gonzalez were notorious for getting in the face of city councilmen. Another tactic when they would protest in front of school boards, the Concerned Lands Organization would bring their children. My stepfather, David Castro, his father was one of the members of the Concerned Lands Organization. He remembers his father telling him, okay, kids, have fun. During the meeting, knowing that if the kids are causing a ruckus, if the kids are being annoying, the school board or the city council would have no choice but then to call on the Concerned Lands Organization, whoever the representative was, to recognize their presence just to get them out of there. Along the three pillars of education, employment, housing, the Concerned Lands Organization had several relatively great gains. They've created, after a very long civil court dispute, one of the first affirmative action hiring programs uh, through East Chicago as a city ordinance. With housing, they were instrumental in helping develop safe and secure conditions for the Guadalupe housing projects. The Concerned Lands Organization made significant gains in education with creating one of the state's first bilingual programs in the region. They recognized at schools like Lou Wallace and Washington High School that there was a growing presence of Spanish-speaking students. However, there were no services offered for them, and in many cases, they were told not to speak Spanish in school. So the Industrial Areas Foundation starts to ask and push for the Concerned Lands Organization to become a multiracial coalition for the entire county leadership of the organization really doesn't see their concerns aligned with other working class communities within the region and pushes this for a vote. The vote becomes such a problem for the Concerned Lands Organization that roughly half of the group walks out of the meeting. And that's a degree of compromise many of these people are not willing to go for, especially with the wounds of 1970. They've figured now is their time and they need to act for themselves. And it creates Unfortunately, this idea that the struggles are maybe parallel but separate struggles. So really the call for creating a working class community 
not just comprised of Latinos, but of African Americans, of the ethnic European, of working class community in general, led to the death of the Concerned Lands Organization in 1979. This is WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and my co-hosts, Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. You can also listen online at WVLP.org. So today we have um, been listening to uh, Emilio, Emiliano Aguilar, who is a doctoral student at Northwest Northwestern University, also a resident of the region. And we're hearing about the Concerned Latins organization, learning about the history of that organization, um, as well as some of the broader context um, for the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana, all to help us honor and celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. So this is the second part of the particular clip we have that focuses on the Concerned Latins organization. And I wonder if we can just start again with sort of the broad for the organizing tactics we hear about here, the gains and then the dissolution. Is there any particular overview that two of you are taking? I'm definitely reminded, I don't know if we talked about this on air. I know we've talked about it off, but like the importance of separation of space, like both like literal mm-hmm. space and um, like metaphorical space, I guess. I don't know. Cause I mean, I, I'm not there and I'm not super familiar with this particular history besides this story, but generally speaking, just like as a white person, part of like understanding my privilege as a white person and moving through the world as a privileged white person is understanding like where it is appropriate for me to take up space and where it is not appropriate for me to take Mm -hmm. up space. So like if this particular organization has a public event, I can take up space at that event. I cannot maybe take up space at their like meetings, which are maybe exclusively for members of the organization, that kind of thing. Um, And I do wonder about the conversation around was it appropriate for, and I have, I have no stake in this to be extremely clear. Like, was that the best move for the concerned Latin organization? Are we to ta- like, are you, are you talking about the end yeah. already the dissolution that happened? Yeah. To maintain like that space or to feel like they should maintain that space or like, would it have been like this idea of this kind of like rainbow coalition, yeah. like w- only solidarity being that you are working class. Is that really what was, what was the most appropriate move either? You know, yeah, and I think as people who are fifty some years out from the seventies, what was happening in the civil rights movement, especially the pressures of backlash, some of some of the ability to organize across difference would have been taken advantage of by people who wanted mm-hmm. to just squash liberation movements generally, Mm -hmm. you know, so I can see how uh, we don't get any of that here, but I'm, I'm mindful of that, that history in the seventies of very active ways in which people like the FBI were infiltrating Mm -hmm. the black Panthers and making sure that there was even dissension among their own ranks. Um, so yeah, I don't know how that would apply in this particular situation, but I, I think there's something about, you know, if the if we think of the groundswell of the civil rights really from the mid-50s into the mid-60s, 
Um, and then the backlash really starting to hammer in at the late sixties into the early seventies. That's some of what's going to be in the background. That's making probably aff affiliations across difference, um, even more difficult. I, uh, what did you take away broadly speaking, Willow, from this second half? Um, broadly speaking, I would say that the concerned Latins organization is something that I would love to recreate. Maybe like the concerned queers organization, <laughs> <laughs> like just the tactics of being petty just to get people's attention is so beautiful. <laughs> just like catching your paycheck in pennies and then like walking to the next teller and making them count it out just to put it back in the bank is so funny to me <laughs> yeah i um he uses the word nuisance uh, not petty i mean maybe maybe that's me being petty but um but i do think there's a humor in that and i I know a little bit about Saul Alinsky as a labor organizer, but not enough to talk knowledgeably on the air. And so, you know, shout out to, to him and his imagination mm, yeah. that was instilling that those kinds of antics, um, which I can only imagine would have made the organizing more fun and playful too, mm. which you would kind of need in order you to keep going. You absolutely need it, yeah. Because um, otherwise, I feel like my... <laughs> I am like, I'm like the exact opposite of this. My organizing is always like so somber and like uh, organized around somebody's pain and mm. suffering, mm -hmm. which of course their organizing is addressing that, right? But because you're approaching it with a sense of humor and how, how can we get attention? You know, I think of when I've been on really big marches, uh, like anti-war marches or, um, I didn't see this when on the women's march, but I'm sure it was there. Like people using drums or people using puppets mm -hmm. um, to really make, uh, bring in the arts and the imagination to uh, the kind of statement and demands that that we have of these political bodies that have power over us. And yeah, I, I've always admired that, but never known like how to certainly create it myself um because i'm too earnest i need <laughs> i need other people to to show me how to do it and then i'll participate but yeah i love that the nuisance politics that was a really a highlight for me of their organizing tactics mm -hmm. no and i feel like that's so necessary i feel like a lot of people like i went to a couple of anti-trump marches and i did the women's march a couple other fun things and um one of the big things i heard at the time that was in the news and backlash that i got from my family was well but you shouldn't block the roads when like, you don't make too much you shouldn't you shouldn't make it too inconvenient for me as a person who's not participating <laughs> and i just that is the point. The point is to be inconvenient. The point is to cause a disruption. Yeah. Like there needs to be uh, a no put in there and a no is inconvenient to the powers that be. Like that's the whole point. So it's fun and it's also I feel probably pretty effective, especially like bringing your kids into what is a very somber meeting, you know, yeah. it's be very serious. People are elected and a lot some of them are getting paid to be there. Like very serious, very very highfalutin business, but we're going to bring our kids in here because then you have to talk to us. Also, great childcare solution. So <laughs> many organizations have issues with childcare solutions. We found it everybody. Let's go. <laughs> 
Uh, this is WVLP 103.1 FM, and we're streaming online at WVLP.org. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, with me, Allison Schutte, and my co-hosts, Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we've been listening to a historian, Emiliano Aguilar, tell us about the Concerned Latins organization in particular, and more broadly about the presence of the um, Latinx community in Northwest Indiana. Um, this might take us a little bit away from the particulars of the nuisance politics here, but it is making me think again today of um, two things where I've been more critical of what somebody else might see as very much still nuisance politics, and I wonder if we can articulate if that's the case and it's just hard when it's against you <laughs> or if it's there's something different. So I'm thinking of DeSantos um, sending mm. the Venezuelans to Martha's Vineyard mm. and wondering, is that another sort of imaginative use of um, resistance to bring attention to DeSantos's concerns? Or do we want to draw a line there or talk about where he crosses a line? Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll just pause there. I have a different example that's closer to home, but I'll wait and bring that up. I mean, like in order for it to not be problematic, you would have needed to have consent and like a freaking plan for all of these human yeah. beings. Not like committed he, literal human trafficking. Yeah, literally used people like as collateral as if they were just property and didn't have human lives like that was the disgusting part but i mean like if it were i don't know sort of flipped and you had a democratic governor that i don't know like had any sort of sense of empathy it's an interesting idea because it's like that was certainly attention grabbing i mean he specifically sending them to martha's vineyard was like okay that's definitely a place that has connotations of like I don't know, highbrow, lots of money type of thing, something you don't necessarily associate with people coming into the country. So I don't know. It's like, so if there were a plan that could have been executed, like, oh yeah, we had everybody's consent and everybody had a place to sleep and eat and had resources when they got there. I just was sending them there to make a point. Sure. But because you did it in such a disgusting way that you used people as collateral, I mean, that's where the line is for me. But is it is is what he was trying to do the same thing? I think, yeah. Like, he was trying to get people's attention, and he sent them somewhere where people didn't expect it, and maybe that's how he feels. Like, it's up to him, even though, I don't know, Crimea River, you ran for the office. I don't know, just... Mm -hmm. It is sort of the same thing, but to use people is really nasty. No, I completely agree. I think the key factor has to be consent. Um, something that I always think about, something that I always think about when it comes to like a lot of the the movements, the civil rights movements throughout the sixties and seventies, is um, the disabled rights movement um, because that it has been particularly impactful and unfortunately very visceral. Like the very famous thing that they do is that they did at the time was people who were physically disabled like pulling themselves up the stairs of like mm -hmm. the Capitol building and like a lot of them got very injured. Like police like 
beat these people. It's bad. What era are you talking about? Is it just for context or do you know generally speaking? I think it was in the like 60s or early 70s. Okay, um, but not recently. You're, no, you're not recently, okay. recently. I mean, I mean, as recent as this. It's vintage. It's the 70s. <laughs> um, but um, this was a, a major part of like the disability rights movement um, and part of how the ADA, the Americans uh, mm, Disabilities Disability Act, Act, was passed, was very visceral, um, very physical displays being asked of people who ideally should not be put in that position. But the key is, is that they chose to do it and they, they consented to try to do Mm -hmm. this thing and to order to accomplish a certain thing. If we did that without the consent of, if we did the same thing, we're like, oh, we're going to have folks crawl up the, the Capitol stairs because there's no other way for them to get there. And we did that without consent. That is like reprehensible, absolutely reprehensible. But it's even though it's a very sad thing, it can be a very beautiful thing and something that we've gained a lot from because these people consented to do this thing for people that could not do it. Yeah, like I will take on suffering in order to strike at the heart chords of those who are bearing witness to the fact that this is difficult and painful for me, Mm -hmm. which of course is also the nonviolent tactics that MLK and others used in the civil rights movement in the South too, right? Like, I mean, they did use children. um, And as far as I know, that was the children campaign like they were wanting to participate in that I I don't know if like all the parents were so (laughs) so so down with that but the children were stepping up in that case even though it meant potential harm to themselves so maybe the second example will be tougher for us I don't know like I was remembering because I had interviewed one of our black alumni here after he was arrested and then that arrest was eventually dropped because he hadn't done anything wrong. But during the arrest, um, he had quote unquote resisted. And so he, you know, like the four police cars had shown up, he had been arrested, taken to jail kind of thing. And as a way to, um, protest that arrest and the treatment, the Human Relations Council here in Valparaiso had heard his story and decided that they, in light of the encounter, this was in 2015, so um, this was shortly after Sandra Bland had been found dead in her jail cell. You know, it was so prior to George Floyd, but there had been in 2015 this other series building up of black Americans that were being injured and killed by police. So the black alumni who had been arrested had had all of that in the back of his mind as it, as he was um, experiencing the arrest. And then the human relations council, I think wanted to be able to speak out against that treatment in our community, given that this is a national concern. So they had put together a statement that they um, wanted to offer to the public. So to raise awareness about this and then the Human Relations Council, before they did that, needed a public meeting in which they had chance for the public to speak and share um, their thoughts on that statement. So the Fraternal Order of Police for Northwest Indiana, I don't know how large the region was for it. It certainly wasn't only Porter County, 
um, police officers or Valparaiso police officers, a much broader swath, showed up to that meeting in very large numbers. And there were a lot of community members there, too. So it was overflowing. There was not enough room for everybody. All the police officers showed up with their um, officers, officer gear on. And so it was for, for those of us who aren't used to being near police so much, uh, it was very intimidating. And then there was a lot of times when a community member would take their, I think everybody was allotted three minutes at the mic, and Fraternal Order of Police would sh- sort of interrupt and shout down. Um, there was one person who in the audience had pulled out their gun at some point, um, uh, like, and nobody did, you know, nobody did anything. Um, and I, I just remember feeling like the, well, it wasn't a respectful engagement from my perspective on the part of the fraternal order of police. It was clear that they were upset and defensive. And that is something that they should be able to speak to their concerns, their own defensiveness, their own public image, but it was done in a way that was really um, aggressive and interruptive. So it did its job, I guess, in the sense of like bringing everybody's attention to their anger. But I, I don't know, does that maybe this isn't maybe it's not even nuisance politics, because there's where's the play in it? Is it just like maybe that's just mm-hmm. totally different? I don't know. But there's something like intimidating about like having guns and stuff there like i don't know police officers i'll be biased that's fine i don't like police officers (laughs) i respect the ones who are trying to do a great job and i think the ones who are trying to do a great job are also irritated by the ones that aren't doing a great job but just like the fact that there is a difference in power and that's the problem Mm -hmm. so like so if this were reversed and it was like white steel workers were going to like a bank that had like majority Mexican American customers and they're like taking out a bunch of pennies and then like going to the next teller. It's just like, it's ickier because there's like a power imbalance there. Hmm. So it's like, so when it's like, so when one side in a, you know, in like an, a human relations council meeting, it's like everybody's packing a gun. Like, how is that? How are you on an even playing field? How are you really going to be angry when your demographic police are more likely to you have domestic violence issues. Like, how are you really going to take that into a space and act as though you have an even playing field with just the people who you are supposed to be protecting while you just have your hand on your gun on your hip? Like, that's not, that's not a discourse that you're inviting. That's showing up in your uniform with your gun on your hip and saying, I'm in charge in this room. And if I want to slam every one of you against the wall and arrest you, I can. So what would have been better if the police want to have an actual discourse is that they put on, I don't know, their regular freaking clothes. I don't know. Leave your freaking gun at home. Showed up with like a little police pin or something. And then we can have a discourse that's not partly hinged on the fact that you have a deadly weapon on you and you want people to fear you. Because if you need that in order for people to respect you, then maybe you're not worth respecting. I don't know. That's just my opinion. But hmm. it's like there, there's an, there's that other thing there, right? It's the same thing with DeSantis, sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. There's no consent. There's a power imbalance. Like the police showing up and wanting to try to argue with people. It's scary to have people angry at you, huffing at you with when they have the power to murder you. You know, it just takes one 
crazy person to just flip and pull their, you know what I mean? So there's that power imbalance. It's not a discourse anymore once you have those sort of imbalances happening. So it's not, I don't think, a nuisance. Yeah, I guess that's not, it's not really an equivalent example. No, especially like when we're coming to folks that are in the positions that a lot of activists or other people are in, um, this is what they can do. Like going through the normal channels is not working, right? They can't get like they can't go to their as of this moment before they established like a more bilingualism within schools. They can't go and supposedly even be able to have a parent teacher mm-hmm. conference because the teacher doesn't speak Spanish and there's no translator. Mm -hmm. They can't have their child who speaks mostly Spanish or is maybe like lucky and is like bilingual already, um, cannot get additional assistance both in their English learning and in their Spanish learning because they simply do not have access to these things. They just don't have access. So this is a result of not having access. This is something we can do to inconvenience you, to make you pay attention to us so that we can maybe get a piece of the pie. Yeah. Well, thank you for that analysis, astute analysis from both of you. Uh, Before we head out today, please check out WVLP's full schedule at WVLP.org. And we highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday a.m. at 8. Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge focuses on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color, especially the African-American communities. So please tune in to check out their show. And that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you can your podcasts our historian today was emiliano and so you can look for more videos like that on our website and if you'd like to support wvlp and our show you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support 